0: We're in Acts chapter 2. This week I had a, a phone call that I didn't expect, and it was from the doctor. And thank goodness there was no bad news, because there was no news at all. They just wanted to call me to tell me that it's time for my annual physical. And I don't know about you, but I'm so glad they make those kind of phone calls, because I get so deep into the weeds of this project, or doing this with my kids, or doing that, or being at this thing, or that, or traveling, or just... Do in life, that I forget to even examine the marks of health in my own body. And something similar happens in the book of Acts when you read through it. Every once in a while, it's though Dr. Luke gives us a little house call. He backs up off the weeds of the stories of Jesus, by the power of his Holy Spirit, being on mission to communicate the gospel to the world and he backs up and he says let's talk about the marks of the church let's talk about the health of the local church and so this is one of many times in acts that we're gonna see where Dr. Luke backs up to show us the marks of the healthy church on Sunday last week the elders and I were talking about this list that you're just about to hear from Kendall and we listed out four or five things that we thought were the marks of a healthy church in the early church I'm just going to talk about one of them today, the very first one. I'm going to leave the rest for next week. So give your attention to it. See if you can hear it as Kendall comes up and reads from us from Acts chapter 2, 38 through 47. And if you're willing, please stand with us as we read God's word.
1: Hear the word of the Lord. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all far off, every one whom the Lord calls himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. And they voted themselves the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done to the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved this
0: is the word of the Lord thanks be to God you may be seated please well did you hear it in 42 through 47 Kendall reads out the marks of a healthy church did you hear the first mark I'm going to give it to you straight up, and then we're going to talk about it together for a few minutes. It's in verse 42. Look at verse 42 if you have a text before you. There are some in the back. Don't be afraid to stand up during the sermon if you need to get a Bible. They're in the back, and you can have that to keep if you need one. Look at verse 42. What did they do? It said they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. These men who had heard Peter's sermon in Acts chapter two, they all got together, these men and women, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That begs two questions. Who were the apostles and what did they teach? That's what we're gonna look at today. Who were the apostles and what did they teach? Sounds simple enough, but let's see how the Lord wants to work in your life as you look at this passage with me. Who were the apostles? Earlier in the sermon, Peter spoke of the 12 apostles when he said, up in verse 32, if you have your Bible open, look at it with me. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Peter's talking about himself and the other 11. The apostles, first of all, are people who witnessed the resurrected Jesus. And then earlier in Acts chapter 1, remember they're trying to figure out how to... um, call a new disciple to take Judas' place. He had abandoned his post. And so they called a new disciple, Matthias, to come and take his place. What they say in verse 21? Do you see it? Look at verse 21. Verse 1, chapter 1, verse 21. So some of the men who have accompanied us during that all the time that Jesus had been with us, beginning from the baptism of John, verse 22, until the day when he was taken up from us, One of these men must become with us a witness to the resurrection. And then they cast lots. Casting lots for the disciples, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, wasn't just trying to say, okay, well, whatever will be, will be. It was their way of saying, Jesus, we want you to call the man you want. Because surely as he controls the fish of the sea, he controls the casting of dice. And so the apostles are people who've seen the resurrected Jesus, who had been with Jesus in his ministry, and who Jesus himself calls. Those are the marks of the apostles. They were called by Jesus, they were taught by Jesus, and they saw the resurrected Jesus. They saw him. They were the ones that accompanied Jesus during his teaching. They were the ones who spent the 40 days with Jesus during his resurrection appearances. These were men who were ordinary Galileans. Listen, they weren't that special. They would not have made your top 12 in this year's NFL draft. They would not have been the guys you would have picked. They were ordinary Galileans. Matthew was probably trained as an accountant. Peter and Andrew, James and John were skilled fishermen. We don't really know much about the rest except Simon, who's got his profession built into his name, the Zealot. He was a political activist but the rest were just ordinary hum-ho dudes. They were just ordinary, kind of like if you've seen the new Lego movie that I saw Friday night. You know, Emmett, the little guy that they, they, they really never see Emmett. He's not special because he has just two dots and a smile. He's like every other Lego character there is. These guys were just ordinary men. They were just average guys, but yet it was through these 12 that had been with Jesus during his earthly ministry that saw the resurrected Jesus that Jesus called to himself. And when the young church, when the young church was trying to figure out what do we do after they died, and they all died, by the way, of martyrdom. You know the stories of most of their lives, perhaps. You know that all of them died by martyrdom, probably except for the apostle John. Thomas probably made it all the way to India before he was killed. Matthias reportedly made it all the way to modern day Georgia which is by Azerbaijan which is by East, it's in Eastern Europe by Russia when the early church was trying to figure out how do we do church how do we live this gospel this Christian life out after they died what did they do they didn't just sit in a circle and say well let's see if we can think of some good ideas they went back to the letters of the apostles and they gathered those letters in 27 individual books and by the fourth century we have the New Testament, all 27 books. They consistently went back again and again and again to the apostles themselves. These are the 12 apostles, it says, in Jude 1.3, where Jude says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It wasn't like Jude said, okay, now we need to figure out what we... He said, no, it's been delivered to you through the apostles. And this is what we cling to. This is what we go back to again and again. Because Jesus called these 12 men, and then later he called Paul in Acts 9, to be the ones who had the authority to communicate truth about Jesus. Are you with me? Simple enough. Simple enough. They were the ones who then raised up elders to stay in the church plants. In Titus 1.5, it says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you, Paul writes to Titus. Or Paul speaking in 1 Corinthians 4, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us, and not go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one over the other. For who sees anything different in you, and why do you, what do you have that you did not receive? That is, why do you pretend you didn't receive the whole teaching of God? You did. And why do you boast as though you didn't? So the apostles, who were they? They were the 12 that Jesus himself called. They had seen the resurrected Lord, and Jesus drew them in to teach them and give them authority to then communicate the truth. So what did they teach? Well, it says that they dedicated themselves, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And in Greek, the word teaching there is the word for Doctrine. They voted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. Now, listen, scholars, one scholar from OU who wrote about our state's history says that of Tulsa, the word doctrine is one of the five chief characteristics of the development of our town. Trail of tears, land, oil, football, and doctrine. Yuck. Doctrine. Listen, when you say that word around Tulsa, you get two different reactions. There's two different reactions in this room, and I've had both of them in my life in the past. One of them, when you say the word doctrine, somebody's going to say, you know, I I don't really like doctrine. Like, it just divides people. Love unites. So, you know, it doesn't really matter what you believe. Just, Just follow Jesus. Just do what the book says, and it will go well with you. And then there's another person, right? That's kind of the emotionalist, right? The emotionalist response. Then there's another person who says, Doctrine, yes, let's do church. I know what superlapsarian, post-millennial, all-millennial eschatological hope means. Do you want to know? They have all these categories. They have all their theology really tightened, buttoned up. And they want you to know. They drive all the conversations back to doctrine so that they can put you in their wheelhouse. That's their passion. They're they're the doctrinists. So the emotionalists who say, ah, doctrine doesn't matter, and the emotionalists who say, oh my gosh, it is everything, you get two different responses in Tulsa. What's interesting about both of those responses is that both of them actually are not what the apostles mean by teaching. For the emotionalists, you know, when they say doctrine really doesn't matter, I mean, come on, really? It doesn't really matter. Just follow Jesus. The problem with that is pretty obvious, isn't it? I mean, I've been susceptible to this in the past. When you say that doctrine does not matter, it only matters what you believe, listen, that itself is a doctrine, isn't it? Or you hear somebody say, you know, it really, it re- in this day and age, the fact that you guys get up on Sunday morning and go to church, I mean, God, if he exists, bless you, they would say. Because it really doesn't matter you're just going there for group therapy. Listen, that is a doctrine. The point is, it doesn't matter if you say you have doctrine or not. The fact is, you do. You live your life according to a worldview through which you understand the world, whether it's what's on TMZ, what's on MTV, what you find on Facebook, or what you read in the Bible. You're being shaped constantly by something that you're learning and you're putting it into certain categories. You don't have to say you're doing that, but in fact is you are. And so one of the chief goals of us as you progress in understanding the beauty of who God is is recognizing that you're constantly learning new doctrine, and you're constantly communicating it to your children. Gulp. You're constantly teaching them about your worldview. And for those who who love the intellectual side of things, you also are constantly telling people that, you know what? You are worth what you know. And if you do not know this, you know, I I really hope that you can get to my stage of a higher life where you can go deep and you can learn big 50-cent words that make you sound really important. What happens is that you isolate yourself from relationships and you, too, get cut off. And some of you know this. Reformed churches draw people in who love to use big words. Is that what the apostles are talking about when Luke says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching? Hmm? There's a a missionary named Leslie Newbegin who's British, and he gave his life to India. And after being in India for 40 years, he came back to England. And he recognized with shock and horror that this country that had devoted so much of their existence to formulating doctrine, to understanding the Bible really well through Oxford and through Cambridge and all the old schools that helped us understand God's word. This is what he had to say. He said, In India, Jesus was honored and worshipped as one of many manifestations of deity in the course of human history. He had been domesticated into the Hindu worldview and that view remained unchallenged. It was only slowly through many experiences that I began to see that something of this domestication had taken place in my own Christianity. That I too had been much more ready to seek a reasonable Christianity based upon my own preferences, a Christianity that could be defended on the terms of my whole intellectual formation as a 20th century Englishman, rather than something which placed my whole intellectual formation under a new and critical light. I too have been guilty of domesticating the gospel. Listen, both types of people, whether you're an emotionalist or you're a doctrinist, whether you hate doctrine or you love it, both people are, can be guilty in domesticating Jesus. They take the parts of Jesus that they love and then they just ignore the parts of Jesus that they don't. And listen, Jesus doesn't let you do that. It's not like you can take Jesus and say, okay, I love the divine Jesus. I love the fact that Jesus was God. It's awesome. It's so cool. Like God would love, but you know the problem with that is if he wasn't human, then Jesus was not a suitable sacrifice in your place. He had to be human. Well, I love that human part. I love that guy. I don't really think he's God. I think he was, you know, he was a little delirious some of the things that he said. Well, the, you love the human Jesus, but you don't love the divine Jesus, then you run up into a dead end too, because then he can't be the sacrifice that you need. Either he was a willing substitute perfect for you, or he was the infinite sacrifice that could pay the guilt of your sin. He is both God and man. And sometimes our rationalistic, no more miracles in the world, everything is buttoned up tight we tend to view the Bible through those lenses and therefore we create a domesticated Jesus and what happens you begin to see that the Jesus that you come to worship is just like you and that Jesus can't change you because he's you listen when Peter preached the gospel what was their reaction it, it says that they were cut to the heart what can cut you if you get a thank you that's right if you get a cotton ball if you get a cotton ball and you try to cut yourself with a cotton ball children what's going to happen if you take a cotton ball and try to cut yourself with it why it won't cut you will it why because it's softer than you are when when you begin to have a domesticated jesus when you begin to make jesus into your image You try to cut, you can't cut yourself with you. It's like trying to cut yourself with a cotton ball. It just absorbs whatever it touches. You need something more. You need something harder than a cotton ball. You need something that is harder than you. Most of us, self-included, tend to want to have a Jesus that is soft and cuddly, and we love him because we can anticipate the way he's going to change our hearts. Jesus does not work like that. He's harder than you. And the reason why the early church went back to the apostles teaching again and again and again is because they wanted to find something that was harder than them, harder than their pride, harder than their calloused hearts, harder than their rigorous pursuit of self-righteous salvation strategies. And so what did they do? They settled on the apostles' doctrine. And where do you find it? The word of God is softer than a cotton ball. It's sharper rather than any two-edged sword, able to divide soul from spirit and joint from marrow. It's able to discern the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. God's word is harder than you. You use cotton balls. Jesus wants to use a scalpel. And so the apostles' teaching was crucial for the early church because they knew that if they were going to be cut to the heart as they had just been by Peter's sermon, they had to use God's word. So here it comes. Here's the 50-cent question. Everybody in this town has agreed with what I've said so far. Yes, use the Bible. Use the Bible. The question is not, do you use the Bible in Owasso and in Tulsa? The question really becomes, what is the Bible's point? And to understand that, you have to see what the apostles considered when they taught. The apostles did not teach on their own authority. They taught on the authority of their Savior who loved them. And so they would go back to seminary and they would think about what it was that Jesus taught them. How did Jesus teach them to preach the gospel? How did Jesus teach them to understand his word? And you remember, you get a glimpse of this back in Luke chapter 24. In Luke chapter 24, Verse 25 through 28, he's on the road to Emmaus. Remember after his resurrection, he's walking and there are people walking with Jesus and they begin to talk about the things that they had seen. And it says, and he said to them, O foolish ones who are slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets he interpreted all the scripture to them, things concerning himself. And then it says, the same Bible, the same Old Testament that they had seen for years before. Then it says in Luke twenty-four thirty-one, And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And they said to each other, Did our hearts not burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And then later, in verse 25 of Luke, chapter 24, when he's talking to his apostles, he says, Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and he said to them, This is written, all of the Old Testament, this is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins shall be proclaimed in his name. Peter took the onlookers in the sermon that's before you, in the passage that, Kindle read the very end of. Peter took these people watching during this beautiful Pentecost feast in Jerusalem. And he takes them through the Old Testament. We saw this last week. And he shows them in Joel chapter 2: Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. It's fulfilled in Jesus, who is resurrected, who has ascended to the Father's right hand physically and visibly, and who sends His spirit to fill you. And you have a ministry greater than the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, because you are filled with the Holy Spirit, having seen Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And not only that, but he takes them into the Psalms and he says, "Jesus is the greater David." David spoke of this one who was to come. Jesus is the greater David who comes to sit on the throne, and the throne will not ever disappear. It will stand forever and ever and ever. And it says this very curious phrase, twice. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were pierced by the word. And the word that Peter was preaching to them Yes, he was using Scripture, but he was driving all of Scripture to show the death, the resurrection, and the glory of Christ who loves you. And why is this so important for us to hear again and again and again at Trinity? Because the death, resurrection, and glory of Jesus is the thing that Jesus himself taught his disciples to teach to other people. You do not get past the death, resurrection, and glory of Christ. And it demands from us the same kind of response week after week that Peter called these onlookers in Jerusalem to 2,000 years ago. It demands repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. We have a three-legged stool at this church that I sit on every week and we preach God's word from. And the three legs of the stool are repentance, faith, and new obedience. They are the same. Stu- they're the same legs to the stool every week. In some ways, you could say I really only have one sermon, and you know what? That's okay because I think Jesus did too. It's that Jesus loves you more than you can ever imagine, and He drives us to see that no matter how righteous we are trying to become, we will, like the emotionalist, we will exhaust ourselves, throwing ourselves at everybody, trying to make peace. Be abused by people who we just want to be loved. We just want to be accepted. We don't want conflict. Or we'll wear ourselves out. We'll exhaust ourselves trying to be the one who's got all the theological answers. We want to know good doctrine here. But we believe that you learn good doctrine about your crucified, risen Savior by going into the text to bring out for us. The twin truths that Jesus lived the life you could not live, and he died the death that you should have died. That's what Peter does. He shows us the news in the sermon that he preached. He said that this Jesus, back in chapter 2, verse 22, he said, This Jesus, the one that God sent to us, you crucified. He's not talking about the Jews and the Romans. This is 50 days later. This is a group of people who are from all over the world who are in this city. And Peter has the audacity to say, You crucified the one that the Lord sent to redeem you. But in his sovereign grace, he has raised him from the dead. And in Christ, you find hope for the life that you so ardently look for and seek. Peter gives them good news. And the Bible is good news. It is not advice. It is a proclamation of what Christ has done in his death, resurrection, and glory. But it's not just good news. The gospel reveals to us our good need. The need of the gospel. What is it that we need? We need somebody to come and rescue us from sin. And the only place you're going to find that, the only place you're going to find it is in the gospel of Christ. Is it Christianity? All other religions beg of you to perform for their deity or for their God. Live up to their standards. But it's only in the gospel that you say that Jesus says, lay your deadly doings down. Down at Jesus' feet and trust in him and him alone. Gloriously complete. Why? Because you're more sinful than you could ever imagine. And yet in Jesus Christ, You are more loved and accepted than you could ever dream at the exact same time. That is the gospel. That is the gospel need that we all have. So the gospel is news that Peter declares to us in his first sermon in Acts 2. The gospel is also a revelation of our deep need. That no matter how much we know the Bible, it is possible to know the Bible and miss the gospel. I'm going to say that again, just in case you were sleeping. It is possible to know Scripture and miss the gospel. You remember the story in Matthew 22 and the Sadducees came to Jesus and said, Hey, okay, Rabbi, we got one for you. So there's a woman who's married to a man, and he dies. And then she remarries, and he dies, and she remarries again, and he dies. See, this happened seven times. Tell us, O wise Rabbi, whose husband will she be in heaven? They obviously knew the Old Testament, And Jesus says to them, without a moment's hesitation, I would imagine, you know neither the scriptures or the power of God. How is that possible? Because they forgot to take all of the Old Testament and see that it points to Jesus, your Savior. And this is what you really need. You need the gospel And you're going to get knowledge of doctrine after you understand. Because otherwise, it will never go in. You'll never have your heart cut to the quick. It is cruel to learn the scriptures but not be cut to the heart. Because the gospel won't really change you. It'll just be, it'll be you. You'll domesticate Jesus. Satan will use your strengths and your weaknesses to just make Jesus just just, you know, just enjoy the good life. But don't let them change you. But the gospel has to change you. The gospel has to change you like an apple tree has to give birth to apples. It has fruit that manifests itself. And you can go staple apples to an apple tree, but you know what? They will not last And you will burn yourself out. And I know from some of your stories, there's at least four or five of us who have been on staff at other churches. And we're here just because we're healing. We're resting in the gospel. And that's a beautiful thing. We want you to come here and rest. Because Jesus is enough for you. And his righteousness for you is enough. Your spiritual disciplines will come. But don't pursue your spiritual disciplines in order to get Jesus to like you. He loves you. And therefore, there should be in us, one of the marks of the church, a yearning for his word. Do you yearn for the Bible? Do you yearn to know it? Do you yearn to know doctrine? I hope you do. I want you to yearn with me for it. We want to know more and more of our Savior. But we want to know it in line with the apostles' teaching which is in line with the way Jesus taught his apostles to teach, to center everything around the death, resurrection, and glory of Jesus because our own pursuit of self-righteousness, our own fierce attempt to become good and right in the eyes of God is so subtle, and we need the gospel today. If you're a Christian, you need it just as much as you needed it when you first believed. Leslie Newbegin, he was a missionary, for crying out loud, for 40 years in a very hard land. And he realized that he had domesticated the gospel, that he had made Jesus into his own image. Have you? And the only reason Newbegin even knew that he did that is because he was cut to the heart by the gospel again. Are you willing to let the Holy Spirit change you? He wants to remind you how much He loves you. And He wants you, in just a moment, as we take the Lord's Supper, to bring all of your doubt, to bring all of your failure to Him. Because your Savior holds out His arms to you and says, I love you. I care for you. The law kills you, but I give you life. If you follow the Bible, in any other way but by seeing out of it emerge the beautiful grace of Jesus Christ you will wear yourself out on a thousand filled attempts to be holy and righteous in my sight but if you see that Jesus was the true Abraham who's the head of the church that Jesus was the true Esther who didn't say if I die I die but when I die I die for such a time as this when you see that Jesus was the true Samson in Judges who takes the twin pillars and he brings them down on all of our enemies, sin and death, then your heart begins to burn because you see all of the Old Testament's about him. And these apostles marveled at that. And these people who have been cut to the heart came again and again and they devoted themselves to this story. And so we want to do that as a church. One of the ways we're going to do it is in the worship service, the the role of preaching is to proclaim to you the good news. It is not to tell you the 35 different interpretations of this particular Greek verb, although I would love to do that. It is to help you see Jesus. But we also want to provide opportunities for us, even as a young church plant, to learn some of the more specific nuances of teaching of what Scripture says and all of its Um, beauty and glory. So we're going to do that over the coming weeks, and I want you to pray with me as we get it started. We're going to have Bible, I used to wonder if we were going to be just a uh, a small group church, and I've actually changed my mind about it. I've been influenced a lot by some of the needs that we have here, because we're yearning for the Word. We're hungry for it, and therefore, on Sunday mornings at nine, in the coming weeks, we're going to start A pretty consistent Sunday school hour for everybody who wants to come, not just for new members to come to new members' classes on occasion, not just for community group leaders, but to have a consistent time where we're actually able to get into the Word and to teach. So you'll hear more about that in the weeks to come. The question is are you cut to the heart? Do you see that your Savior loves you more than you could ever dream? Do you devote yourself to the Apostles' teaching? Do you see in scripture the beauty and the glory of the, and grandeur of your Savior who loves you? He knows the anxieties of your hearts, friends. And he wants you, even now as you come to the Lord's table in just a few minutes, to bring those anxieties with you and allow him to show you the extent of his love and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he wants to change us by the power of the word, the apostles' teaching, the gospel of the death and resurrection and glory of your Savior who loves you and comes to you this morning. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you'll help us to recognize that in the middle of Scripture, in every page of Scripture, if we're to rightly understand what the apostle's teaching is, then we have to begin to look at you. Jesus, thank you that you're the shadow of every substance in the Old Testament. Father, thank you that you are the fulfillment of all the covenant promises. Thank you, Father, that though in the Old Testament gave portraits, foreshadowing, Lord Christ, you are the one who fulfills it. You are not the shadow, you are the substance. And so, Lord Christ, we come to you yearning for the word, wanting to be good students of the word, but wanting most of all to be cut to the heart because we cannot live up to your standards. But you draw us near in love. So do that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.